I'd like to go back to that part of the um, fourth foundation of mindfulness, the part of the Satipatthana Sutta that uh, Sally covered so spectacularly the other night. I'd like to go back to the particular part that discusses mindfulness of the factors of enlightenment. And I'd like to read to you a piece of the text. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of the seven enlightenment factors. And how does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind objects as mind objects in terms of seven enlightenment factors? Here, there being the mindfulness enlightenment factor in him, a bhikkhu understands, there is the mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. Or there being no mindfulness enlightenment factor in her, she understands, there is no mindfulness enlightenment factor in me. And she also understands how there comes to be the arising of the unarisen mindfulness enlightenment factor and how the arisen mindfulness enlightenment factor comes to fulfillment by development. And then that piece goes on to say, just in the same type of word structure, the practitioner pays attention to uh, the three rousing states, rapture, investigation, and energy or interest, and the three calming states of calm, tranquility, and um, equanimity, and concentration. And uh, I wanted to talk about them tonight because I really want to talk about uh, the whole question of why are we practicing, where are we going, how do we know that we're going there, how can we work with these factors. I, w- I was thinking as I read this in preparation for this, uh, the sutta just says the practitioner dwells in the awareness, this factor is present of me, in me or not yet present in me. And I think to myself, and probably this is the latter day um, 21st century Western culture uh, mind that comes to, that says, why should the bhikkhu do that? Why should the practitioner do that? What will happen? What's good about doing that particular thing? What's the essence of it? Why is it important? And there are several things immediately that come to mind. Each factor alone supports that balance of mind that allows for wisdom to reveal itself. I love the idea that we don't really have to figure out wisdom, that wisdom reveals itself. The end of the Metta Sutta, uh, there are those lovely lines at the end that says, whoever manages to dwell in this completely quiet mind with passions non-aroused, that practitioner, in that practitioner will not find themselves reborn again. I think what that means, what I choose to interpret that as meaning, is if the mind is still enough, enough wisdom reveals all by itself so that greed, hatred, and delusion, any of the things that lead to falling into another rebirth of suffering don't arise and that person is free. I like very much the line from the Yoga Sutta, Patanjali, that says, when the mind is still, wisdom is self-relevatory. I just like that so much, the idea that you don't have to do anything 
except allow the mind to assume its natural quietness and keep it there, and then wisdom is self-relevatory. I also like the idea that they're cultivatable factors, that if I got up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to behave very wisely, I might or I might not. You know, it's a, it's a nice intention, but I don't know a practice for saying, okay, one, one two, three, wise, ready, set, go. But I could get up in the morning and say, today is going to be a day of really deepening concentration. I could really do that. Today I'm really going to work on, uh, on calm. Today I'm really going to see about equanimity and what I need to do to really maintain that. Or today I'm really going to bring the factor of investigation to every experience that I meet in a new way. I'll try to see it in a new way. I could decide to cultivate that factor. And in fact, one of the things, one of the reasons that I decided to do this talk tonight is I'm hopeful that you will think about doing that. Those of you who are starting now the last week of practice, keeping in mind that the Buddha said, seven days, and you can do it. (laughs) That if you're starting the last week of practice, you could come with even renewed zeal and say, okay, now I'm going to do this. And for those of you who are going to stay for another five weeks, for sure, to say, this is a way I could practice. There's also a way in which in that seven factors rubric, the uh, mindfulness as the seventh factor often seems to me just a little bit extra. I, I can actually see the difference between mindfulness and equanimity, but they're very close. And I was thinking today that uh, the six others, the three rousing faculties and the three composing faculties seem to me something like energetic pairs. And I like to think of them as energetic pairs coming all together to support that seventh faculty of mindfulness, which is really the basis of this practice and the, the place out of which we understand wisdom to arise. And then I thought about one last thing that I wanted to say that I thought was a clue that comes at the end of that very portion of the sutta after uh, the, the Buddha has enunciated all the seven factors and the practitioner notices whether this factor is established in her or not, is established in him or not, and then ends by saying, in this way, the practitioner abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects internally, externally, and both internally and externally, and she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That particular phrase, independent, not clinging to anything in the world, comes at the end of several sections of this particular part of the sutta. So this is not the only way that the practitioner abides. But I think, that's a, it's, I think, it's, a, I think it's a clue phrase. The practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anyone, anything in the world. I think means free. And when I read an instruction that says, listen, do this, and you'll abide non-clinging, you'll be free, I get really excited about it. You will not be caught in the endless rounds of selfing. That creation of a self when something needs to be other than it is. I just find that enormously exciting. So I thought what we might do is have an interactive Dharma talk 
so that we would have, and beginning now, we would have um, um, experiences of cultivating each of those faculties, or trying to. And I chose for the first two that we might practice together, the faculties of calm and rapture. They seem to me energetic pairs. And I like to start with the faculty of calm because in the beginning of the sutta, in the very, very beginning, uh, you remember in the first foundation when the Buddha gives the instruction, the practitioner sits down and notices the breath and thinks to herself, thinks to himself, knows, understands, I breathe out long, I breathe out short, or I breathe out, whichever it is, I breathe in long, I breathe out long, I breathe in short, I breathe out short. It then says, she trains thus, I shall breathe in tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out tranquilizing the bodily formation. I take that to mean that it's quite all right to have the intention to use the breath to calm the body. I've read into this and I don't know what the Buddha meant, but for myself, I do that. When I do that, I take slightly longer breaths, like a little bit longer. Normally, when I'm doing breath awareness, I just sit here and the breath comes in and the breath goes out and the breath comes in and the breath goes out. And there's no effort to make it longer or shorter or longer or shorter. But you know that sometimes when you do yoga practice, you make an effort to do the breath in longer or blow it out in certain kinds of ways in order to make certain kinds of mind and body states arise. So I'm going to suggest that we'll, we'll sit for two or three minutes, and I'd like to suggest that when you sit, you breathe in knowing that you're breathing in longer, and breathe out knowing that you're breathing out longer. And uh, at some point, I want to give you all the instructions and the rationale for them before, because then we can just do this all quietly. We'll sit for maybe two minutes doing that. And then I, I'll make a suggestion that I think is likely to arouse a certain amount of rapture in the mind and body. I hope it does. It's not a surprise. I will say to you at a certain point, smile. It will make a difference in you. But don't smile before I say it, okay? <laughs> so you can see that it does it. It's a trick practice. You have to wait. In the meantime, let's all close our eyes or open whatever is your comfortable place. The practitioner knows when she takes in a long breath. I'm taking in a long breath with the intent to calm my body. And as he breathes out, the practitioner knows I am breathing out long with the intent to calm my body. And we'll do that.
Now smile. reason that works, that this normally, or often, and I hope for you anyway, some response of pleasant feeling in the body is uh, when the mind is even a little bit calm and you give it a suggestion, feel this way, feel that way. It does. If you said to yourself, may a little bit of rapture arise in my mind and body, it might have without the smile. Actually, smiling is great, though, because it relaxes all the muscles of your face. and It also gives you the instruction, don't try so hard, because while you're really calming the body, you're trying hard. Then it says, okay, relax. And there's always a little bit of pleasure in the body when it relaxes. So as we go along, I want to talk about uh, the reason that it's valuable, at least for me, to have a certain amount of calm and a certain amount of delight present in my body, because those are two of the factors that allow me to deal with whatever it is that comes up that might be a challenge to me. One of the things that um, I noticed this morning when Carol and I were here, uh, the only people today, uh, is that all the seats in the middle of us are empty. And uh, some years ago, I was teaching in Barry. And uh, there were several of us teaching. And one day, somebody had a backache and was sitting over on the side on one side. And then there were two people left. And the next day, that person was back. And another person was sitting on the other side with some sort of a affliction that kept them from sitting on the floor. And then some days, we were all back up. And some days, there were two of us down and various configurations of up and down. But um, still, some number of years ago, and then we said, what are we going to do when we are all up at the point when none of us can sit up here anymore? They said, well, we're going to have to take away this. I don't know what they're going to do in Barry because they have actually an, uh, a kind of a rise that they'll have to deal with. We can just take these blocks away, and I think we'll soon do them. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but both Carol and I spend a fair amount of time in our lives and in our practice life sitting on the floor. I'm sure she liked it as much as I did. It felt good, not only because it looks like a yogi and all of those things. It's actually wonderful to sit on the floor. And for those of you who can still sit on the floor, I'm happy that you can do it. It feels wonderful to sit on the floor. It's a very stable position. It really is. I, I sat on the floor long enough and enjoyed it enough to really miss it now that I can't. And it happens to me not infrequently that I come in the door of a meditation hall. And in this one, particularly, I have a little time to think between the time I come in and I get up here. And I think to myself, hmm, I could probably sit up on Azafu today. I did it once in this retreat, I think. It's much nicer for a talk. Just for the talk, I'll sit up there. So the, the truth is, it's nice for a talk because it puts you up a little higher and you can see a little more, but it's become increasingly clear to me that it's not a wise move for me to do that. 
And that the, the little suggestion in the mind that says, you know, you could do it for an hour, an hour is nothing, just go do it, is not my wisest voice. It's a voice of, it's a voice of mixed signals. Part of it is a voice of remembering how pleasant it is to sit that way. And uh, part of it is a voice of denial of the fact that I really can't do it anymore, that my back won't do it, my neck won't do it. Probably, partly a denial of old age, sickness, and death. It's not going to get better. So I, in between coming in the door and coming over here, I think again my thought, and I thought I also because I had prepared and I was going to talk about it, I think again my thought, and I thought, okay, this time, since I have thought through this thought, it doesn't bother me anymore. Does it? <laughs> maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. I think to myself, the whole key to this, Sylvia, is acceptance. But the whole key to everything is acceptance. And so my progress report to you, if you were my teacher and I were telling you in an interview, I would say it's work in progress. I am working on it. Not there yet, but I'm working on it. I'm paying attention to it. I was thinking, though, this morning that uh, when I looked over and I saw Carol over at the other side, I was thinking, you know, I don't have to think about uh, stories that happen somewhere else to make a Dharma talk. The whole of life is a Dharma talk. There is no, there is no situation that is not pregnant with the revelation of old age, sickness, and, and death, of change and decay, of everything that arises, passes away, of transient, are all forms in existence. There isn't anything that you can look at that you don't see the three characteristics of experience in. The key, I think, is to have the eyes to look. And I think that's what the uh, cultivation of these particular factors of mind contribute to. They contribute to having the kind of eyes that see profoundly. Let's practice two more of them, more interactive practice. Let's do um, concentration and investigation. And I'll tell you again the instructions before, so uh, I'll have to talk minimally during. I'll tell you the rationale for. Actually, it's really important to know why we're doing something in a certain way, towards what end. That is a lasting legacy from my father. My father was a school teacher all of his life, and I have been all of my life, one way or another, teaching something. And what I learned from my father early on, from I, I, I'd watch him make lesson plans, which is what I thought that people did after school every day. Um, he would say, never teach anyone anything without telling them how it's going to work and why it ought to work and without motivating them. And then they'll be interested in doing it. So the reason to practice concentration, really, is really to, to, do the, to be able to have the mind open to fully recognize the whole truth profoundly of what is the nature of this life, this mind, this experience, this moment. It really needs a great deal of composure as a base for it. Otherwise, there's way too much to hold steady. The development of concentration in most lists of the Eightfold Path, comes as the ultimate eighth step. And I like to think of that whole Eightfold Path really as a circular, as a circular path, and that 
Every path part is really part of a hologram of all of the seven other path parts, and there's a way in which I can really see that if I want to. But I think that it's in that way, that it's traditionally listed in that way, because really everything rests in the mind that's concentrated, literally. Everything rests in it in terms of the rest is built on it, and everything rests in it in terms of it has that solid base of composure to hold what comes up. And so when we did um, the first week of this retreat and we were encouraging you to stay with the breath and only with the breath, that was really to develop, begin to develop the concentration that now amplifies as you practice through continuity, through steadfastness, through mindfulness of all the other uh, events that are happening, but built on the base of concentration on one thing. So when we sit in a minute together as our interactive practice session, I'll ask you for two minutes to really put your attention on the breath and not let it waver. Pick the place that you most traditionally or most clearly feel the breath, whether it's your nostrils or your chest or your belly. Let the attention be there. And I once thought to myself at a point in my practice, I'm taking a vow on discursive thought. Can't take a vow on thinking, by the way, because the cognition continues. But I thought, not a single commentary, no comment, just breath. And it's actually quite a tense kind of practice. It changed radically my experience and the unfolding of my whole practice career. So it was a good thing to do. But I'm going to only ask you to do that for two minutes. So there's a little bit of extra, really, tension around do not let the attention waver. And then at some point, I'll say, see now if you can see the beginnings and the endings of each breath. So what we'll be doing is really, you may have been doing that beforehand, but I'll be asking you to see closer and closer. So here's the mind concentrated on the experience of breathing. And now within that whole experience of breathing, to really be able to look at something smaller than the whole experience. The four experiences of the beginning of an in-breath, the end of an in-breath, the beginning of an out-breath, the end of the out-breath. Look closer and closer and closer. See if you can really see when does it begin, when does it end. As a, really a way of keeping the keen end of attention in the mind alert to balance the composure that comes with concentration. It's a really key to mindfulness. That the basis of mindfulness is often described as tranquil and alert. So this is tranquil and alert. This is really concentrated and alert. That would be a better word. Concentrated and alert. So let's do it. Sit in a way that's comfortable. Let the attention rest in where your breath is most apparent to you and just be with that breath.
and see beginnings and endings. I think you probably noticed that as you sat there, you certainly have a uh, direct opportunity to discover the arising and passing away nature of phenomena, because as you pay attention, a breath arises, it disappears. Another breath arises, it disappears. When you look very closely at the beginnings and endings, you may find actually that it gets harder and harder to find them the more closely you look to see all beginnings and all endings. Even more important than finding the passing away nature of breath, I think really I like to do that because it reminds me of the real imperative I feel in this practice and in my life to see deeply through what looks like the outside of a situation and see the inside of it. Vipassana, the word vipassana is sometimes translated as clear seeing, seeing clearly. In... um, I saw one French text where they called it vision profonde, and I like that much better, actually. There's something about profound vision, really seeing. Two years ago, there was a um, copy, there was a, a, a newspaper article that I cut out and carried around with me for a while. You probably remember it, because we all knew about it, so that's why I remembered to tell it to you. You'll recognize it. Do you remember there was a a coal mining accident, uh, I think in Pennsylvania on the East Coast, and some miners were trapped and for days and in, against all odds and with, uh, through really frightening circumstances, they were uh, saved. And so the front page of the newspaper had a really beautiful photo of one of the coal miners and his wife, and he had his arm around his wife, and. They look tremendously happy. And I remember carrying that photo around and showing it to classes I was teaching. And I said, you know, I look at this photo, and it's possible to look at it and think, great, look at that. These miners were saved. So if I really look at this photo, I think to myself, what were those miners? Why were those miners under the ground, several hundred feet under the ground? What are we doing there? 
under the ground? What is all of the what are all the factors that cause certain people to have to jeopardize their lives, if not their lungs, being underground in those kind of circumstances, doing taking out coal from the earth when we can have other kinds of power? What are the forces that are at work in the world that cause people to have to do this for a living? That really it was not possible for me to look at that photo. It was really a happy photo and not see through it into the roots of greed and essentially greed that keep and delusion that keep that kind of whole process going whereby we despoil the earth and the atmosphere and the whole planet and the lives of people. What, why, how could we not see that in that photo? Last March, there was a photo in the newspaper, it may have been in April or May, but sometime after fighting had broken out in uh, Iraq, there's a picture on the front of the Sunday Times of a Marine, uh, a Marine medic, a doctor, sitting um, in the middle of a battlefield, actually. And you could see behind him, just as if it were a movie, like it was not real, the figures, crouched figures of um, soldiers with guns drawn in the middle of warfare, right behind this Marine sitting on the floor, cross-legged, holding a child who's clearly a girl child. It's got a pink sweater on, in his arms, just like this. And the caption underneath said, uh, Marine doctor comforting a three-year-old girl, who, Iraqi girl, whose mother has just been killed in the crossfire. And I looked at his face, and I, I looked at it, carried around again for days, showed it to everyone I was teaching, because I looked at his face and I, I kept saying, what can he be thinking? What can he be making out of this? It's, it was such a surreal picture. Right behind was the war happening. Here's his child. I, I think about all the images we have that are central to religious practice, in this particular practice, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child. The image of La Pieta that is central to Christian tradition. I think to myself, how can, how can I look at this picture of this Marine sheltering this child and caring for her, thinking to myself, who will tell her about what happened? What difference does it make which side? She was caught in gunfire, it doesn't matter who fired the gun that her mother is just as gone, regardless of what, what is happening? What will happen, I thought to myself, what needs to happen so that the world altogether gets to have the kind of vision where it looks through a situation and says, what are we doing? Let's not do this anymore. This is not the way we want to live. Human beings can do it another way. What will it take? I think you can see it anywhere, actually. A happier vision I had last night. I went to see Cinderella last night. I went to the ballet. And I went with my daughter and my four-year-old granddaughter. And uh, it was right here in Marin, and it was the London, it was the uh, Moscow um, Festival Ballet, and they were wonderful. And um, uh, since we had seats way on the corner in one aisle, but on the aisle, the honor could sit up on her on the um, uh, arm of my chair. She sat between us, I had my arm around her, 
And I could be talking into her ear and telling her what's happening. She knows the story of Cinderella. But here it is getting danced out, so you need a little help with the pantomime interpretation. So I would be whispering very quietly. Uh, now the sisters are mocking her. And uh, she gets that about mocking. And uh, now they've gone off to the ball. And now Cinderella feels really sad, so she's crying. And uh, all of a sudden she says in a loud voice, when is she going to go to the ball? And I said, shh. <laughs> I continue the, the discussion into her ear about who's doing what. Shh. It's all right for me to talk. But just as I'm watching it, I was thinking, you know, in that art, as in every art, all of the human passions of jealousy and envy and desire and uh, narcissism and devotion and fidelity, all of the passions, the, the difficult ones and the ones that make us noble as human beings, right there being danced out in front of me. I think if the eyes are open, it's not possible not to see the truth about the suffering in the world and the truth about the nobility of the world and the possible redemptive hope that there is. I'll tell you one more of those uh, you can't not see it everywhere stories because I, I think you know, you've noticed that I'm not here uh, often for parts of days and the reason I haven't been here is I've been at a physical therapy clinic at the other side of Marin's. I have to travel there and have my neck traction, and then come back. I'm happy to tell you that I am quite well now. I have to still go because they have to continue to do what they're doing, but I'm quite well. But this particular clinic has its treatment cubicles right, lined up right next to each other with walls in between and curtains on the front, but not a ceiling on the top, so that as I lie on my uh, treatment table with my neck in the traction machine, I hear what's going on on this side and this side and across the, the, the aisle and, uh, and, and across over there. And all voices in all different uh, ages, you hear men's voices, women's voices, a fairly young woman's voice saying, the first time my back went out on me, I was 15 years old. And then after I had my first time, I think, oh dear, it started way earlier than I. And I start to think about that. And then on the other side of me, there's a man with a, an older-sounding voice. You can tell who's got the, by the timbre of the voice. And um, he's saying, uh, I really am so grateful for these, uh, apparently they're doing massages on the back of his neck. He said, you know, because I can get around with, these, uh, with this breathing machine and the oxygen, and I carry it with me all the time, but, uh, but I, I can still work at my computer, and it really, it's so important for me to work. And it's, uh, my neck gets stiff from sitting, so this is so valuable to have this. And in between all of these stories, I don't see the people. I don't know who they are. They are not related to me. I can hear across the aisle somebody else is having their problem, someone else is having their problem. And of course, as I go in and out of the clinic, I see people lined up with all their various disabilities and, and people ministering to them. And in all these conversations, there'll be the voice of the person telling about what hurts them, and the voice of the responder consoling in some way. Well, I think we can work on this difficulty. I think there's something you can do. I'll give you an exercise for that. I think to myself, it's extraordinary what human beings are able to do for each other. We can tell each other, I'm in pain, and we can respond to it. It means I'll help you. 
I heard somebody say, you know, I really didn't need to come in today because I know all the exercises, but I needed to come in for you to give me my pep talk again because I'm beginning to lose heart and I need to hear it in your voice. I think what we're really doing here in our practice is we are trying to train our ability. It's a really a natural ability to pay attention and train particularly the attention, the ability to pay attention to the impulse to love. I think we have a natural good heart and that it's nurtured by wisdom. We look around and we say, look what's happening in the world. I have a very good friend. My friend Mary has been my friend for more than 30 years. And my friend Mary is a nun. So in, uh, she's a Catholic nun. And so we have different religious paths, but we are very close religious buddies. We get it, what we are each trying to do. And we've several times playfully had the same conversation over and over again about being able to communicate about spiritual practice on a level that's beyond anything that has to do with parochialism. And uh, so we have agreed on three, se- three questions. We've agreed that to have a conversation in depth about someone's spiritual practice, you need to be able to say, what are you doing? How, what's the name of what you do? I do Vipassana, or I do Metta. What's the name of what you do? How do you do it? would be the second question. And what's supposed to happen? How does it work? And that the person, if the person could answer those questions, you could have a discussion with them. And uh, Mary always has a fourth question. She said, you have to also ask Sylvia, is it working? So I said, that's not a nice question to ask because (laughs) there's only two answers to is it working? Yes, which is okay. And no, which would make the person feel bad. So you can't say, you can't ask it. But you have to assume that if somebody is continuing to do their practice, then it's working. So the question I want to talk about is, what does working mean? How would you know your practice is working? And one of the things that I'm hopeful that you're intuiting from what I've said so far is one gauge of how much my practice is working or not is how much are those factors alive in me at any time? Now, they come and go, like everything else. They're not steady states. But how much, uh, how much calm is present? How much rapture? How much concentration? How much ability to see clearly, to investigate? The two other factors besides mindfulness left to do in our interactive are uh, energy and equanimity. I had a hard time thinking up an energy practice. I could think of things to do when when I'm, or you are, are meditating and the mind is tired, there are things to do, but they're more mechanical things to do, stand up, breathe, whatever. I actually think that I am restored in energy every time my equanimity stays balanced. I think they come together because when I manage to abide somewhat in equanimity against the arising challenge of the moment, then my energy is not only restored, but it builds. And I mentioned earlier, I I thought a lot about how is equanimity different from mindfulness? That mindfulness, the balanced, non-reactive understanding of what's arising moment to moment. I thought, and I'm making this up, it may be different. It seemed to me that my understanding of equanimity is that it's balanced. 
it, it, the, the, the idea of balance is there, but that it's somewhat passionate, that uh, my sense of equanimity is that it's the fountain from which metta and karuna and mudita come, and that it's the mind that's not only balanced, but really responsive, really um, perhaps with energy prepared to respond out of, uh, out of that place of balance where it can hold the suffering of the world, the impulse to respond, the awareness of suffering, the awareness of joy, and hold it all in a perspective of wisdom. Last, um, last Friday, last Friday, three people here had birthdays, and I knew about it. I, I knew one of them personally, the other two I heard about. Three people had birthdays. And I thought, you know, here we are quietly. And what would it be if we had like a birthday gardenia that we pinned on somebody, if they had a birthday or something or other? But you can't know who has a birthday here. And since we've been here in these three weeks, a number of people have had significant death anniversaries pass by. People have come in and said, this is the first anniversary of, or the sixth anniversary of, or the 42nd anniversary of someone significant. And that person for that time is really with that experience. Since we are here, people have gotten news of the death of friends out in the community. People have gotten news of problems in their outside lives. And yet, they're here. I was going to... uh, I was going to suggest, just as the equanimity meditation, um, eyes open. Here we have all this custody of the eyes. Look around a little bit. Don't smile. Don't make eye contact. Just look around. You don't know who has a birthday today or who has a death anniversary today, who's worried about their health, who doesn't feel good. Who's hurting? Who was hurting and feels better? I think about that. On Friday, my experience was I thought to myself, I know these people with the birthdays, and I know these two or three other difficult days going on. There's a line from a Shakespeare sonnet that says, Life piled on life. How am I going to do this? I'm going to be with the people with the birthdays and the people with the death days. Got a, an article. A friend of mine sent me an article that's been published. He's a longtime Dharma practitioner, and his father just died. And uh, his father died at home, and uh, his mother, who is senile, kept forgetting when she was in the next room they elderly, elderly people, that the father had just died in the next room. And the pain of him, of having his father die, and having his mother not be able to hold that. And he said in his article, he said, um, my mother had wit enough to remember that, because my father died that morning, that you don't move a dead body on the Sabbath. 
so she left it there. But she forgot that he died. And how painful that was for him. And I thought to myself, as I, as I read it, I thought to myself, well, that's the worst. But then I thought, well, that's not the worst. That's the worst for him, because it's his. For each of us, we have our particular worst. It's a very touching story about somebody else. But my worst is something else, and your worst is something else. And he goes on to write in the article about how his mindfulness practice really not made it okay, or in fact made it less than terrible, but made it manageable and made it bearable. It's always somebody's birthday. It's always somebody's death day. I do that equanimity meditation quite a lot on buses and trains. I look around and I say there's uh, 300 people on this plane. wonder how many are grieving this or that or that or that. How many people are dealing with cancer? How many people have a reprieve? How many people don't have a reprieve and know it? How many people are going to fall in love with the person sitting in the seat next to them? It happens all the time, you know. I mean, because we always fall in love with somebody who was in some seat next to us at some point, you know. (laughs) Might as well. (laughs) I mean, you don't do it by by long distance. It just seems more amazing. It seems always amazing that it happened on a plane, because if I had taken one flight earlier or one flight later, But the truth is, if we had turned left instead of right at any point in our entire life, the whole thing would be different. (laughs) I think that's the equanimity meditation. (laughs) You know what I most took away from that article about uh, the the difficulty of... uh, Sustaining something terrible like a, a parent who doesn't understand that the other one has died. It's, a, it, in, in, it's, it's such a paradigmatic symbol that everybody here understands what it would be like to have two parents, one dies and the other one doesn't get it that the other one dies. So everybody gets the terribleness of that. But I think I actually wanted to bring it up more because it's one of those paradigmatic symbolic images that that keys me into the fact that everyone suffers with their own story and in their own way, but everyone suffers. Every, no one is immune to it. Think of the, the giant amount of suffering in the world and everybody with their particular corner of it that they've somehow found themselves tending. There's a line from Longfellow that uh, says, uh, if we could read if we could but read the secret history of our adversaries, all enmity would disappear. That uh, everybody struggles. Everybody struggles with whatever they've gotten. And I think also everybody struggles to be heroic, to try to move into that place of being that really is where we're meant to be. I left mindfulness for the last I thought we'd end up by sitting for a minute. And I I was tremendously touched. uh, This whole week I've been reading the new tricycle magazine that's come, and there's an article by Fleet Mall, who 
was a student of Trungpa Rinpoche and um, for complicated reasons ended up in maximum security prison for 14 years. And uh, having done a crime, actually, so was... Um, and he used the 14 years to do intensive practice. And he made the decision when he got in to use it as intensive practice. He said, here I am. I can either uh, fight and, uh, or I can use this as a time for a very long retreat. And in the midst of the chaos, uh, which he describes in great detail, the chaos of a maximum security prison, describes how he did a long retreat and how he managed, in fact, to carve out space for himself. After a while, he said, you know, when you're in, when you're in prison, you get a job uh, in prison and you work at it and you get a week off a year. I didn't know that, that you get a week off a year, for like a holiday from your job. He used his holiday to, to stay in his room. He used whatever spending money he had to buy food for a week from, a com- from the commissary, and he stayed in his room, and he did an intensive sashin, or, well, we don't call it a sashin out of the Zen tradition, but he did an intensive retreat for a week. And the interviewer at one point asked him, what did the other um, uh, prisoners think about you? Because he was, he was doing things like cleaning out a broom closet, because it was so noisy, cleaned out all the broom closet, put the brooms on the outside, put a chair in it, and he sat in the broom closet. He said, well, in the beginning they made fun of me. But he said, after a while, they uh, began to respect me. He said, because people respect, he said, everybody respects constancy and discipline. And I just liked that so much. Everybody respects constancy and discipline. His way of talking about the other prisoners were there, that were there, his way of talking about the guards was so open about everybody is there because of all of the events of their lives. It couldn't be other. Really, I think about the, the way in which when the mind is still and wisdom is revealed, that the wisdom that's revealed is that nobody could be any way than how they are. But there's no one to blame. I think when I, I, I think for myself when I see that, when I when I really get that, I am the happiest that I am because um, my good heart, which is yours as well, that I think we're all endowed with, is able to do its thing of respond with um, friendliness or compassion or empathic joy. There's an expression sometimes when um, I've, I, I, uh, I've heard it used a lot when somebody is behaving um, strangely or behaving outrageously. That's more like it. And people will say in a derogatory way, oh, he's not in his right mind. I actually think about being in my right heart, that there's a certain right heart that I could be in. And I feel when I'm not in my right heart. And I think that my answer to Mary's question, what are you practicing? How do you practice it? What's it supposed to do? Is I am practicing paying attention. I'm inclining my attention 
towards the natural impulse to the good, could say that in a formal way as I could do a lot of metta practice. I do it by doing a lot of metta practice. I do it by trying to do concentration practices. I do it by trying to not cultivate um, um, unskillful mind states. I, try, I do it by trying not to allow anger to take a big root in my mind. To whatever degree I am skillful, that's how well it's working. How does it work? It works because this whole practice works in those two roots of deconditioning the mind from its habits of creating more suffering, deconditioning the habits that continue the suffering that we've done habitually, really seeing through that ha- those habits, realizing that they're habits, and not identifying with them anymore. That's half of them, or a third of it. That's one piece of how they work. The other piece of how they work is I think that by practicing in that way, I have a certain ability, you do too, everybody does, to really notice more and more the suffering in the world and the redemptive potential of compassion and want to live in that place. And more and more, I think through the practice of loving-kindness and all of its permutations, I get to be more habituated than I was to living in my right heart. So I think that's what's true for me. I think it's work in progress. But I think it works. If someone asked me that fourth question, is it working? I would say yes. And I would know from all of you, because we meet, many of us meet here. But I know from all of you being here that what brought you here was your right heart. And I have enormous faith in this practice because it's the most natural thing in the world for us to do, to work. So I think it is working. And maybe in your practice tomorrow and the days after and after, you'll think of those seven factors and you'll say to yourself, all right, is this present in me? I'll make it present. Is it present? Oh, good, I'll sustain it. That's all. Let's just sit for a little bit. The practitioner abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Thank you.
This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on February 22, 2004. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.